You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I don't often talk about my own high school years on this podcast, but I remember in high school jazz band playing a Christmas medley called Heaven and Nature Swing. It led with a caravan-inspired arrangement of We Three Kings, and if you don't know Caravan, go ahead and hit YouTube post-haste and then come back and listen to this. When I hear the hymn, We Three Kings, these 30 years later, I always feel cheated when it doesn't break out into snake charmer saxophone runs at the ends of the rhyming lines. Today we're not talking about jazz, but we are talking about what we think we should see and what we think we should hear when we take on the stories and the characters that we think that we know. We're also talking about those three kings. Eric Van Den Eichel's recent book, The Magi, Who They Were, How They've Been Remembered, and Why They Still Fascinate, treats the Magi, and my pronunciation of that word is going to move around as we talk, blame Seminary Greek and T.S. Eliot, as a kind of jazz standard. We do well to study the first recording, and we also learn some really cool things when we take on later arrangements and reimaginings and even deconstructions of these mysterious figures from Matthew. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Vanden Eichel to the show. Eric, thank you for joining us. Nathan, thanks so much for having me. The book's introduction distinguishes between the historicity of Matthew's Magi and the meaning of Matthew's Magi, and some of our listeners are going to find that distinction a little bit uneasy. After all, ever since Herodotus, who we get to discuss later, and I'm excited about that, history has been a meaning-making enterprise. So what kinds of projects does your book set aside and what kinds of projects does your book undertake? It's a great question. And so on the, on the note of pronunciation, I think, uh, you know, that's uh, my, my pronunciation vacillates between Magi and, uh, and Magi. So uh, so we're we're in good company here. Um, you know, the question of historicity is is really just a fascinating one. And I think part of the reason why. I make that distinction is just the nature of the texts that I that I study, and so and, and really in this book, the nature of Matthew and how many readers are approaching Matthew. So when I talk about Matthew as um, you know as as literature, and a lot of people that I talk to about you know they're, they're sort of assuming if they're if they're reading these texts religiously or devotionally, um, they're coming to them assuming that well Matthew says it and therefore it just happened right. And so, um, so the so the point about you know distinguishing between you know what actually happened, which is a question that I'm not all that interested in, um, and then a question of meaning is really really important for a project like this because I think that when people approach the Magi story, um, they often approach it in that sense of like, well, Matthew is simply telling us a story about history, a story about something that happened. And, and my interest is, um, is predominantly, well, let's not talk about this as an artifact of history, because if it is an artifact of history, it's not accessible to us. Um, what is accessible to us, though, is why Matthew included this story. And so, um, so this book very much sets aside the project of trying to figure out who the historical magi were. And in fact, my position in this book is that there weren't any historical magi. Um, now, but also my position is it doesn't really matter. You can still talk about the meaning. And so that, you know, sort of focusing on that question of meaning and and trying to kind of push the reset button for what did these, uh, what did Matthew's inclusion of this story, what's the point? And that's, the, and that's really the, the project that, that, that this book uh, uh, takes up. Very good. Well, I mean, the first uh, artifact that you really deal with in this book is not the text of Matthew, 
but with a 20th century Methodist minister's book, uh, namely Jesse Hurlbut's Life of Christ for Young and Old. Now, that book's version of the Magi, uh, you know, I mean, it serves to illustrate some of the key features of this reception history, which your book concerns itself with. What can we readers learn with some historical attention to Hurlbut's book? Yeah, so Hurlbut, this is a book that I that, that is kind of near and dear to my heart um, in in many ways. Uh, so the copy that I actually used um, for, that, that I have that I have now in my library belonged to my grandmother, and I have memories of seeing that copy of that book. You know, growing up, going to her house, and um, and as I was working on this book, one of you know, I, I was I was sitting there, and I. I Pulled that book off the shelf and I said, I wonder if this book has anything, you know, some interesting little anecdotes that I could include about about these characters. And um, and I found, of course, you know, as I talk about in the book, like this is a hugely expanded version of the story. So in terms of what can we learn um, with some attention to Hurlbut, I mean, I think that with, uh, you know, what I think we can learn a lot just about reading and about uh, about how we make meaning and about the types of things that we read into stories and the lenses that we are bringing to those stories. And so with Hurlbut, for example, you know, he actually says in his introduction, he says, you know, my goal here is to retell these stories in a way that children can understand. But he says explicitly, and I'm doing this without romanticizing them and without adding anything to them. But then, I mean, the book, I can't remember exactly how many pages it is, hundreds of pages. It's a huge book. It's so much bigger than the four canonical gospels put together. And so it's very clear that he is adding quite a bit. And with the Magi story, he's he's adding conversations, he's adding emotions, he's adding all sorts of details that are not in Matthew's story. And so what we learn from that, though, is that this is an example of a a sincere reader who I think is is benevolent. I think that Hurlbut is is trying to do something that he wants to be helpful. He's not trying to go in and butcher up these stories or whatever. He's trying to present them in a way that he thinks is true to what's going on. But then in that process, he is he's reading his own stuff into it. And so what we can learn though is that this uh, sincere reader is doing this. And so how much more, though, are all of us doing that, too, right? When we're reading into these texts, we are reading through our own experiences. We're reading through our own expectations. And with a text like this, we are reading our own sense of familiarity into them. You know, the number of the Magi, the names of the Magi, <laughs> right? And those things aren't in the text, but we see them there because we've been told that they're there. Right. And, you know, it reminds me, your project, you know, not necessarily Hurlbut in particular, uh, of one of the things that uh, the rhetorician Kenneth Burke says at the end of his big book, The the Grammar of Motives, is that uh, we're not, the project here is not to dispel ambiguity, but to name truthfully the places where ambiguity happens. And it right. strikes me that, that, that that's, that's something that your book is doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when you work with these uh, histories of reception and of interpretation, you make good use of Umberto Eco's notion of a cultural encyclopedia. So what is a cultural encyclopedia and uh, what work does that idea do when we tell stories about the way that people write and read traditional texts? Yeah, so the cultural encyclopedia is an idea uh, is, is, is a, uh, an idea from Echo that I 
um, discovered by reading Echo in uh, in my graduate studies, and um, <laughs> making that clarification because I had a I had a, a, a an email from somebody very very shortly after the book was published that says you know I really love I really love your idea of the cultural encyclopedia. It's like well hold on now <laughs> I wish I could t- <laughs> I really wish I could take credit for this but I absolutely can't. But anyway, um, Umberto Eco's um, cultural encyclopedia is is very much in the background of pretty much all the work that I do as a scholar of early Christianity. Um, so the cultural encyclopedia is um, it, it pretty, it's, I mean, it's difficult to explain succinctly, but here, but here's a try. So um, if we think about the, uh, an encyclopedia, you know, when we, those of us who grew up with these things kind of on the shelf, the cultural encyclopedia refers to essentially every piece of information that's available to like a group. And so, you know, it encompasses everything like our cultural encyclopedia includes, um, you know, television shows, um, you know, books, uh, you know, uh, coins, paintings, you know, movies, all of these things, it includes everything. And so when you are dealing with a, uh, a specific literary text, you know, literary texts are, um, are, are sort of interesting because they are chains of kind of these references, right? Like, they're, you know, the authors are referring to these various different things. And, and Echo says that the literary text um, leads us through the culture encyclopedia that sort of he describes this as a, as a labyrinth. And the, and the, the um, literary texts lead us through the cultural encyclopedia and the authors lead us through a specific path of of different references so like you know the the concept of the magi is part of matthew's cultural encyclopedia and so he's sort of leading us through this but then um the interesting thing that then happens though is that the people who are reading these texts who are in that same cultural encyclopedia they are able to um take little byways and little shortcuts and and explore other pieces of the labyrinth that they are familiar with that perhaps the author isn't familiar with. And so that kind of uh, leads to, you know, as we're talking about later receptions of Matthew's work, that's where we get some of the embellishments is that somebody says, ooh, this reminds me of this. And then they that 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 detail sort of changes to align with another um, another person's kind of interpretation of that encyclopedia. Right. I mean, it reminds me of ideas of, of intertextuality and hypertextuality, where everything that we say is related to other things that we've read and heard and spoken and interacted with. Right. It, that's exactly right. And 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 the difference, I think, for for what I'm doing here, and and I think really much, very much, what what Echo was doing in his own work is. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm all in favor of intertextuality. I think that the 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 reader does. Um, a a great deal of work when we talk about meaning production i think that that's a really important thing to acknowledge is that 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 how texts are read is as essential as what what um motivation goes goes into those texts like what is the author trying to say um but i think echo was trying to provide a correction to what he saw as just uh, an abuse of um you know texts can't just mean whatever we want them to right there is also a sense that the author has set out a path and it's okay to kind of deviate from that path and do some interesting things with it. But I think he was concerned. Um, I can't remember what work he describes this um, in, but he, he, at one point he talks about, you know, people using texts as, uh, as hallucinatory uh, devices or something basically to just say whatever, whatever in the world they want. 
Um, and so I think his encyclopedia was trying to say, well, yes, let's let readers have a have a fair degree of freedom when they're reading text, but also let's also be cognizant of what an author is doing and let's ask that question and that makes us uh that makes us a more responsible reader of this text it's not the only question we can ask but it's an important starting point very good well let's turn to matthew your chapters on matthew concern themselves with three loci of translation namely the noun magi and the geographical genitive udi and the verb proskunein mm -hmm. so i want to start with the first of the trio what are some of the biblical contexts New Testament and Septuagint in which the noun and its cognates appear and, and how consistent or how variable a word are we dealing with when we read the noun Magi? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, and here's where our pronunciations are, are going to differ. So I'll, I'll say Magoi with the, um, with the Greek. Um, so it, just in terms of, of the, of the biblical contexts, um, we find three places in the New Testament uh, with, with Magoi and uh, one place in the Septuagint with Magoi. So we'll talk, start with the, um, well, with the obvious, the, the reason we're here. Matthew is probably the most well-known of these. Um, Matthew 2 is uh, these, these Magoi who come from the east to Jerusalem and then Bethlehem looking for the uh the the one born king of the of the Judeans. And so that's 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 the kind of first instance of the New Testament. The other two instances in the New Testament um were are both in Acts and they are a person named uh Simon who in Acts actually this is a important clarification. Simon's not actually called a, a magus in Acts. He is said to Although have, he is in Dante no, well, right. And he is also in other in, in, in later traditions, his name is actually Simon the Magus or Simon Magus. So he becomes kind of this um, he, he doesn't he does embody that term. Uh, uh, funny, funny enough, actually, this is a bit of a side note before we talk about Simon. Um, this is one of those instances of uh, in my own research process of of doing what I've talked about other people doing, which is importing ideas into texts, because um, I knew that I wanted to talk about Simon in in this book. And my memory of the Greek text was that Simon was, in fact, called a magos in Acts, but he's not. He is said to have previously uh, maguo, so the, the, the verb version of this, but he is previously done things that magi do right <laughs> in, in Acts. Um, but anyway, uh, so Simon, though, is um, is sort of a performer and he is uh he's somebody who amazes crowds with uh with magic tricks essentially he's previously per, uh, uh, performing magic in the city and he gets himself into trouble because uh some apostles of jesus show up and they start laying on hands of uh, uh, uh to the crowds and the, the people uh receive the holy spirit and Simon is, says, well, this is really, really interesting to me. And then he offers to buy it. He says, can I buy this power? And they, you know, and Peter, of course, loses his mind. It's like, you know, you're wicked, you're horrible, you know, whatever. And so Simon, though, is sort of um, a, a very good example of the Magus as a sort of charlatan figure, because, you know, they are um, in ancient literature, they, that, that word can describe a very respected uh, group of religious, uh, trained religious professionals. But then there's also a very, very important difference between those trained religious professionals, which we'll get to in a second, and 
the sort of magus, right? So like Simon is sort of a is a, is a huckster. The other example in Acts is a person who um, has two names actually in the story. The first the primary name is Bar-Jesus, but then he also goes by the name Elamos or Limus. And, um, and he is described explicitly by the author as a magus. And he is also described as a Jewish false prophet. And um, and he gets into all sorts of trouble because he's on the island of Cyprus, where Paul is going and being a missionary, and the proconsul uh, who he is uh, who he is linked with, right? This this idea of the magus being drawn to positions of power, and so the proconsul that he is associated with is very interested in hearing about Christianity from Paul. And uh, Bar Jesus says, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, he's trying to keep the apostles away and Paul strikes him blind and then he has to sort of grope his way out of the story. Okay. So an interesting contrast then in the New Testament between the good magi in Matthew and the wicked magi in Acts. And those are the only places in the entire New Testament that speak of magi. Right. And real quick, and the payoff of this will come later. Yeah. But uh, Acts, I mean, who has characters named Lydia and Simon of Cyrene, doesn't give any indication that Magi is a an ethnic term the way that we're going to hear about later. Well, and that's exactly right. And that was one of the that's one of the things when, you know, when we when we look at um, interpretations of these characters in Matthew, so many biblical scholars will say these characters are supposed to be Gentiles. That's and that's the right, whole point. Right. That's the whole point of Matthews is that they're Gentiles coming to Jesus. Well, I mean, Simon is is is. Um, doesn't seem to be a Gentile and, uh, and, and bar Jesus definitely isn't a Gentile. Right. And so these other examples of how this text is being, or how, the, how this word is being used would seem to suggest, well, the other, the other two references to Magi in the new Testament are, are not Gentiles. So how much sense does that really make? Um, the other, the other um, uh, example, and this is another place where, um, you know, I, I was kind of hoping to find a bit more than I actually found was the Septuagint uses of Magi. And I, I had a whole, I, I, I had a, a, an entire chapter in my mind when I was very, very early in the stages of, of doing research of like, I'm going to talk all about the Magi and the Septuagint. Well, there aren't, there aren't any really. I mean, there's really one example, and that is in Septuagint Daniel. And you know, Daniel and the other uh, uh, people who are brought to Babylon in the exile, and they are trained in the way of the Chaldeans. And then when the king has this mysterious dream, he calls together all of these different sorts of people, the the wise people, the sophistoi, and then he calls together also in this group, the, the magoi, of which Daniel is sort of part of this group. And this is an instance, though, where you do have that sense of of the Magi being these respectable, sought after religious professionals. These are people who you want to, to have near you because they can help you to um, understand visions, to interpret dreams and, and all of those sorts of things. So, so I was very, very shocked and not in a very, not in a positive way. I was looking at this going, well, I guess that chapter's not going to happen, but, um, but yeah, but, but it's a fascinating usage though of, uh, of that terminology in Septuagint Daniel. But those are the only instances in New Testament or Septuagint. So you get that word in the Babylonian court, but not in the Pharaonic court. You don't get it in Exodus. Correct. Although Philo describes the people uh, in, he describes Pharaoh's advisors as Magi. So you do sort of get that in Philo, but you don't get it in, in the biblical text. 
Right. So once again, listeners, you know, just trying to point up, I mean, the, the, the slipperiness of this term, uh, now I, I, I'm going to indulge myself and we're going to go where I was hoping for 50 pages of this book, you were going to go, <laughs> yes. uh, namely the Magi stories in Herodotus. And by the way, the reason I say Magi is that I've had a couple classicists on this show mm-hmm. and they make fun of my Erasmian vowel sounds when I pronounce Greek words. So I, I subconsciously go to the demotic pronunciation, Yeah, but what roles do the Magi play in Persian politics in Herodotus and how does their interpret interpretation, pardon me, of the rise of Cyrus mm-hmm. set the stage for some of the key moments in Matthew's Magi story? Oh yeah. And the, the Herodotus is, um, I mean, it de- I guess it depends on who you ask about if, if, if Herodotus is engaging reading or an absolute slog. Um, but the stories that involve the Magi and Herodotus are just I mean, they're just fascinating. Um, so the, the the one that I think you're referring to is uh, the story of Astyages, and he has this dream. And for Herodotus, the the Magi are they're almost like their own little ethnic group. They're they're sort of a they're sort of an identifiable uh, tribe. And he's certainly not the only ancient author to speak of them that way. But right. but he they, does. They have a province that they come from. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, with the story of uh, of Cyrus and and then you know Astyages, who's the who's the king, um, he has this dream about his daughter, and um, and and his daughter, you know, ha- is going to have a, a child who is going to sort of replace him on the throne. And uh, there's all these sort of complicated, you know, like uh, you know. Astyages says, you know, we're going to take this, take this child and, you know, have him, have him uh, executed or whatever. And this is baby, little baby Cyrus or whatever. And, um, and then Cyrus goes off. And they flee to Egypt, right? Uh, no, yes. they don't. No, they no, don't. no, 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 they don't. No, you're... <laughs> that's a different baby. Is that this a test? Yeah, right. Exactly. No, that would be that'd actually be really nice. But that kind of trope of being worried about uh, a child usurping you on the throne i mean you do see that pop up in um uh in matthew right i mean it's it's yeah. this is the story of Herod. and eric and i were talking before the recording when when he and i both encountered this story for the first time it just kind of melted both of our minds like oh my gosh in you know fifth century bc or fourth century i forget which yeah. we have this story of a paranoid king who wants to kill infants Right. When you find it in Exodus as well, like it's it's almost as if this is a literary trope that authors are using. Right. And, and you yep. get it. You, you get it everywhere. Um, Romulus and Remus, the same kind of thing. Right. And uh, people people don't like the thought of losing power. And so the way that they the way that they keep their uh, their guarantee of power is to kill whoever's supposed to take the throne after them. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, the Magi in this story um and I, I I do a pretty detailed retelling of the story in this book, but uh, it's just it's they're they're called to interpret all these dreams and all these visions, and so they're the ones who are saying you know like this this child is gonna is gonna take over for you, and then there's another point where where um uh, where Astyages calls them and says like well what about this dream that I just had should I still be worried because he then becomes aware that nobody killed Cyrus and so Cyrus is like a little boy now and the Magi come they're like no you don't have to worry about him anymore because there was this game that he was playing with his friends where they proclaimed him king. And so that was what the dream was about. Certainly he won't be king again, right? And so, and so like, but they are, um, so in the, in that case, it's actually kind of funny because they are, um, I mean, they're skilled, but they also make mistakes. They misinterpret visions sometimes. Um, so it's kind of a funny thing, but yeah. So, um, so 
really when Herodotus talks about Magi, though, one of the things that is consistent is that the Magi are always in close proximity to rulers. And um, they're, they're, they are always in the court of the king as advisors. In another place in Herodotus with the story of Cambyses, uh, the Magi, are, there's two Magi who... Uh, who usurp the throne uh, because one of them happens to look like the heir to the throne or whatever. So, so they kind of, you know, are in power. Um, but I think that the, um, I think that, that this kind of characterization of the Magi as being in being drawn to political power and drawn to legitimate Kings and also sort of being around when Kings fall and new Kings rise it sort of gives a really, really interesting background to when the Magi show up in Jerusalem and Matthew says, Herod was terrified and the whole city was terrified with him. Well, and, and, and we look at this and we go, well, why would he be scared of Magi showing up? Well, if Matthew's readers are familiar with this portrait of Magi in Herodotus, which is when they show up, um, somebody's about to lose power. There's going to be a, the, you know, governments are going to a, a fall or whatever. Um, then it makes perfect sense. Like, oh, they're terrified because these guys usually bring news that there's a new king in town. And then they don't show up back in Jerusalem. <laughs> and then they don't come back. Well, because that's, that's because the new king has been born. Oh man, it's good stuff. And I want to move on because there's a Absolutely. lot more in this book. But, so much more. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether someone along the line pointed out the David Gematria in Matthew one or whether I encountered it for the first time in your book, but it felt like I encountered it for the first time in your book. So, oh, well, I mean, thank you. Yeah. in a story about the true Kings rising and a false Kings murderous response, how do all these David images in Matthew add to the Magi search for the one born King? Right. Well, and the David, yeah. So one of the things that I do is um, in this book is I, I really, really, stress very strongly that you have to start if you're going to understand what uh the magi are looking for and who they're looking for you have to start with the genealogy of matthew and i make this joke right when i'm teaching matthew in my classes i make this joke that um i, I have students that's like raise your hands if you skip the genealogy and they all kind of look around <laughs> they look around because I'll have, you know, I have them read like the first half of Matthew for a class and they look around. They're like, I'm not going to admit, like, seriously, raise your hand if you skip the genealogy. And then they and then eventually they all raise their hands. And I say, well, why did you skip the genealogy? And they say, well, this is like if you're going to make fun of how boring the Bible is. Right. Like if you're if you if you have a TV show where somebody's reading, uh, reading at a wedding or something like that. And the point is, like, some of this stuff is antiquated. They're always reading from like first chronicles, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And that's exactly how Matthew starts. So-and-so, the son of so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And it's just, and it is super boring, but it's also super important. Um, and so the genealogy through this kind of gematria, when Matthew says, you know, he stresses that number 14, 14, 14, which is the value of, of David's name in Hebrew. Um, David is the 14th character in the genealogy. Um, Matthew's not subtle about any of this. He starts out by saying, I'm telling you a story that is very much about David, right? And so like, and, and, then, he, and then he's like, you know, cause he's not a subtle author. And then he's, you know, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 
the city of David, right? Like everything is David, David, David. And so, um, so I do think that the, that the Magi's presence there as sort of legitimizing the new king is very much playing into that the new Davidic ruler has now been born or the new Davidic, the, the new king of the Judeans, the rightful king of the Judeans is here. And I think they play right into that, uh, into that, into what, what the, what the genealogy sets up. Well, I'll confess when we were reading uh, Matthew's uh, version of the, the Magi story is that uh, your deflation of allegorical possibilities for the gifts that the Magi bring disappointed me. I thought I had the golden incense tied pretty handily to royal and priestly visions, and I've been fiddling around with the reading of the myrrh that points back to the uh, legendary disgraced mother Mira, who, you know, the great granddaughter of Pygmalion, who has a miraculous son born from a tree, mm -hmm. but your reading holds that the three gifts are expensive, and that's about all that there is to say about it. You must have good reasons for steering that way, away from the allegory of the gifts, so let's hear your reasons if we must. <laughs> well, okay. So, um, yeah, so a few different reasons. So, so, so traditionally, and, and these interpretations are really, really early. And so I'm not going to say that they're, they were somehow made up, um, pretty recently or whatever, or, or, or that they're not interesting readings of Matthew's story. I actually think that they are, but in terms of what Matthew was actually after, you know, the allegorical readings you're talking about is, you know, gold symbolizes uh, his royalty, um, you know, incense symbolizes uh, his either priestly status or divine status, and then myrrh symbolizing his humanity, um, based on this assumption that myrrh is, um, is a burial ointment, which it's... Or a miraculous birth. I just want to get my reading in there one more time. Go ahead. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so the reason I steer away from those is not because I think that they are, um, you know, just ridiculous, because I think that allegorical readings like that are actually really appealing to people. Um, but but I steer away from them because I just don't think that those are Matthew's intention. So I want to start with the with the myrrh. Um, so myrrh in the ancient world is uh, sometimes talked about as a, I mean, it's, uh, myrrh is not, an, is not a balm or an ointment. Myrrh is a spice. And so it is sometimes, though, uh, used in, uh, in the creation of burial ointments and things like that. But, I mean, Mark also at the crucifixion has a, a pot of wine that has been mixed with myrrh. Um, so presumably either as a flavoring or more likely as some sort of, um, you know, uh, numbing agent or something like that, perhaps um, some sort of medicinal purpose. And then um, Hippocrates has an entire uh, text on the treatment of ulcers, and he talks about myrrh as being helpful for this. And so, um, so I kind of steer away from that because I think in Matthew's cultural encyclopedia, uh, myrrh could certainly be associated with death, but uh, but not always, and. I also, though, find evidence that Matthew is actually steering away from from that kind of allegorical um, uh, reading. Or maybe maybe let me back up and say, because Matthew is not a subtle author, I sort of assume that if Matthew had intended these things to be readings like you know uh, divinity and kingship and 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 humanity, that he would have made those more explicit. So that that's sort of a, a working assumption is that because Matthew is not a subtle author, he would have made that more explicit. So 
Matthew, though, we know one of the sources that Matthew uses is the Gospel of Mark. Matthew is, is taking material from Mark. And here's an instance where Matthew had an opportunity to make that explicit link between myrrh and the myrrh that Jesus receives at his birth, and then the myrrh uh, associated with his death. Matthew had a very clear opportunity because Matthew knows Mark's passion story. And so Matthew knows that in Mark, there is a pot of wine mixed with myrrh, myrrhed wine. Matthew, though, doesn't keep that detail. He changes it. He changes the myrrhed wine to wine that has been mixed with gall. And so it's almost like he sees the potential there, or maybe he doesn't because it's not on his radar, but for whatever reason, he changes that detail to say, not my wine mixed with myrrh, wine mixed with gall. If he had meant for that connection to be there between birth and death, and he intended for the myrrh to bridge that gap, certainly he would have left that detail in, or maybe even said they came to the tomb bringing myrrh to anoint his body or something like that. But he doesn't, he sort of intentionally destroys that connection, or at least he destroys that detail. Um, so in terms of though, what these gifts, I mean, to be clear, I actually do think that the gifts do um, symbolize something. I think that the gifts for Matthew point to Jesus's kingship. I think that all of them do, not just the gold, but I think all of these things are expensive gifts fit for a king. And so they are, they aren't just random assorted things. They're meant to point to Jesus's royal status, I think. Very good. I want listeners to know that your chapter on non-canonical, non pardon me, Magi narratives goes in some truly bizarre and fascinating directions most of which we won't have time to engage in this interview. Mm -hmm. So listeners go get this book, but Please, yes. one of them that I just have to let our listeners hear about is the Armenian gospel of the infancy in which the Magi bear a secret document first sealed and delivered to Seth, the son of Adam and Eve and preserved through flood and fire to be delivered to Bethlehem. Just as Jesus is born, Eric, what is on this secret document? And why are our three kings leading armies into Palestine in this version of the story? Yeah. Well, so I will not tell you what's in the secret document because I want you to read the book and because I want you to read the Armenian Gospel of the Infancy. You but hear that, no, listeners? We're operating with a pro here. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're gonna you're gonna have to buy the book before you uh, before you know to, to find out what's in it. But um, but no, it is an absolutely fascinating um, a fascinating detail, and 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 that pops up again in uh, in the revelation of the Magi as well. Um, but yeah, the the secret document is a is a sort of document that is to be delivered to um, you know to the sort of messiah savior figure and so it's this sealed document and it comes it, it it's a fascinating fascinating connection um between the kind of garden of eden um adam and eve and it's sort of this document is sort of like a last will and testament almost of adam that is then kind of carried on by seth and like you know preserved on the ark during the worldwide flood and all of this i mean it really is it really is sort of a dan brown like this this piece of this this document that has been 
that has been guarded by a secret society, right? And and so the Magi in the Armenian Gospel of the Infancy, they are the represent the representatives of this secret society, the guardians of this great secret. And so they are, you know, and and so they're then in charge when they see this star, when they see this portent, they're in charge of then taking this document, which they themselves haven't even read. That's really important, right? I mean, this is so secretive that they know they know who it needs to be delivered to, namely Jesus, but they don't know why and they don't even know what's on it. All they've been told is this is important. Take it when you see this sign. Right. And because you're familiar with this document, I've, I've not read this one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, are there any references in it, you know, either explicit or, you know, subtle? Uh, to the passage, at, you know, towards the end of Daniel, where the scroll is sealed up and none may open it, because it seems like that'd be a, a good, you know, apocalyptic connection for a text like this to make. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, maybe I hadn't thought about that connection, but, um, but yeah, the idea of secret scrolls and those sorts of things also occur in Revelation, right? This, this, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a pretty direct reference to Daniel, right? Because you know, everyone weeps because the scroll cannot be opened, and then the Lamb yeah. says, "I can." Right, I'm exactly. Paraphrasing. So, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, so the the idea then that there is this kind of, um, yeah, there's one person who is who is equipped to open it and to read what's inside. Um, which also kind of entertains, you know, the, the, the Daniel connection between uh, the Magi and Matthew and the Magi and Daniel. Um, I, the, the, the reference right now is escaping me, although it's in a footnote in the book, which is another reason you should definitely buy it. But um, there's a, there was an article that was published uh, decades and decades ago that entertained the possibility that the Magi and Matthew's gospel are exilic Jews from Babylon who are, who are coming back. Um, to Judea, which I think is, I, I'm not, I'm not completely convinced that that's on Matthew's radar, but I find it to be a really, really fascinating connection. And you could probably bolster that connection um, with these kind of later interpretations of that document that nobody can read except for, except for the one. Very good. Very good. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more non-canonical Magi stories in here, but I am trying to keep us to an hour. So I'm going to shift sure. to your penultimate chapter and you move from Magi narratives to Christian commentaries on Magi narratives. And one unfortunate feature of these commentaries is their reliable and regrettable anti-Judaism. Now, once again, we won't be able to treat all of them as the book does. That's why our readers need to go get the book, but let's focus on Ephraim the Syrian for now. What anti-Judean or anti-Jewish, and you should feel free to comment on the differences between those two terms, temptations beset Ephraim's story of the star as a teacher of the nations? Now, that's an excellent question. Um, so I think, you know, Ephraim, you know, Ephraim sees, well, there's the, the anti-Judaism that is in these authors is also present in the uh, in the apocryphal narratives, one of the—I mean, I'm a—I'm a scholar of of apocrypha first and foremost, and so one of the things I don't want to give the impression of is that the apocrypha are all really good and rosy, and that then these evil patristic authors come in and just wreck everything that the apocrypha did. That's very much um, not the case. Um, but the—but uh, what you know, what Ephraim does is he. Um, he sort of frames this uh, this star, um, yeah, it's the kind of teacher of the nations, the announcer and the guardian. So it um, 
it leads the Magi who are these kind of dark figures. Um, and by dark, I mean, sort of like, that's how he, he, he describes them as dark ones, like blind men, right? They're, they're fumbling around in darkness, but the star comes and it leads them to Jerusalem. But then Ephraim does something very, very interesting when the star, when the, when the Magi reach Jerusalem, the star then disappears. And Ephraim says that it dims once they reach the city, so that the people wouldn't be able to see it. The people meaning the Judeans, right? And so, and it's sort of like, I mean, he, he just, he, he does a lot. He does a lot with this, um, you know, the, the, the star concealing its light and so that Herod and the people wouldn't kill him. So the idea then with Ephraim is that the Magi are, even though they're blind and they don't really know even what they're looking for, they are the ones who can be trusted with this information. And um, and Herod and the, and the other Judeans, who I think for Ephraim, those people are standing in for sort of Jews uh, overall, right? This is not what Matthew necessarily intends, but for Ephraim, that's very much the case. And so he has this sense that the information that the star is providing to the Magi, that the Jews can't be trusted with it. And so there is that kind of very, not even subtle, unsubtle um, anti-Judaism in, you know, God, God, God trusted the non-Jews with this, but, you know, Herod and the Judeans were just murderous um, is sort of Ephraim's right. view. And not necessarily in the anti-Judaism, but in the, uh, the added motivation, I'll put it that way. Um, it reminds me of the Quran's version of the Joseph narrative. Uh, hmm. Because in that one, you know, when uh, when uh, Jacob tells Joseph not to uh, speak his dreams out loud, uh, the Quran adds the detail or your brothers might kill you. And so, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those fascinating, uh, you know, that, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to call it a midrash, even though I know that's not an Arabic term. But, you know, it's a it's an addition to the story that fills in a gap that the original text leaves. Right, right. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, I want to shift to, uh, you know, your your final chapter where, you know, you discuss uh, some more recent Magi stories. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the one that I want you to uh, riff on for a little bit um, is honestly, I mean, one of my favorite Jesus texts, and that's uh, Charles Moore's novel Lamb. Um, I have no idea where to point when we discuss the Magi. I'll go ahead and call them the Magi at this point since we're in more recent days. Um, but I do want to discuss one thread that seems to run through their part of the book. And you pointed up nicely when, in your examination of it. And that is that um, these Magi, they seek Jesus out to get something for themselves. And I mean, that's a very different story than the patristic or the apocryphal or the New Testament version of the Magi seems to tell. Um, I mean, how does Lamb... Uh, how does the story change? Like I said, I'm going to turn you loose because I, I don't even know where to point. <laughs> yeah. So Moore's this. So this book is um, I, I, I have the very, very short lists of uh, a very short list of books that I can that I can name that I have used in class before. And that when I ask students to read 50 pages they'll come to class having read 150. This book is just an absolute gem. And my best dream is that Moore is somehow listening to this podcast at some point. And just so I can just say thank you. This book is Charles just, Moore, if you're listening, let me know. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it really, really just a brilliant, a brilliant book. And the Magi are, are central characters in it. And so the whole idea is that Jesus is, um, so it's, so it's the gospel according to Biff. And so Biff is Jesus's childhood friend. And when Jesus is young, the, the premise of the book is that he sort of, um, he knows that he's special. He knows that he has a divine identity, um, but he doesn't really know what this means. And he's asking everyone. He's asking, you know, rabbis. He's asking his mom. And, um, you know, and his mom is like, well, you know, the, the, the people who showed up at your birth seem to know that there was something special about you. Um, we're not really sure what they were, you know, what, what, what that special thing was, but she's like, maybe you should go find them. And, um, and so that, so she sends them off and they go on the silk road or whatever. And then they encounter, um, you know, Balthazar, Melchior and, uh, and Gaspar who are, uh, so Balthazar is an Ethiopian uh, magician and, uh, Gaspar. Oh gosh. I always get these two confused because they're brothers in the book. Um, Gaspar is the Buddhist monk. And then, um, Melchior is, is the Hindu renouncer. And so uh, uh, Jesus, who's called Josh in this book and Biff, they go out to, uh, um, you know, to find them and to say, you know, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? And then when they do, each of the Magi teaches Jesus something something different right um but yeah we we learn um we learn from them that they were not really united in their quest in matthew right sort of they are they are assumed to be kind of traveling together from the same place and in lamb they're all kind of coming from different locations um you know both spiritually and geographically and they're all searching for different things and so you know uh as the ethiopian magician um you know uh balthazar is searching uh, we find out later for for immortality he's searching for the the keys to immortality um and uh and gaspar is, is searching for uh you know enlightenment etc so they're all kind of looking for these looking for these different um powers, I guess, is, or, you know, is, is the best, the best way to describe, um, to describe that. So one of the, uh, the old, um, yeah, one, one of the, one of the, well, maybe old and maybe, uh, some, somewhat more recent, um, this idea, uh, the, the book sort of rests on this idea that Jesus, um, at some point went eastward and learned from the wisdom of the East. So this kind of orientalizing um, uh, motivation that is present in some biblical scholarship more recently, not, not, you know, super recently, not as much, but for a time there was very much this notion of like, well, Jesus perhaps, you know, went East and learned from Buddhist and learned from, uh, from all the rest and not opposed to this in principle, although I don't think there's any evidence for it, but the, but lamb lamb does actually kind of take that and run with it, right? What would it look like if Jesus went not only to the East, but what would it look like if Jesus went to the East in search of the Magi who then searched for him? Um, and the very specific things that they're looking for, um, is, is kind of something new. So in some of the patristic authors, um, the Magi come to Bethlehem or they come to Bethlehem, Jerusalem in order to be freed from spiritual shackles or demonic possession or these sorts of things. Like they come for conversion. That's not what's going on in Lamb. What's going on in Lamb is that these characters see Jesus as a source of potentially um, useful information and or power. And so they show up trying to get that from him.
Right, right. And and, and it, it makes it a peculiarly modern tale that it's a story about, you know, three magi who are trying to exploit Jesus. Uh, because, I mean, that doesn't seem to be much of an anxiety with, with the obvious, you know, exception of, you know, Simon Magus. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, usually, I mean, you know, in the in ancient texts and even in medieval texts to a large extent, uh, it's a matter of, you know, uh, loyalty to Jesus or, you know, uh, rebellion against or warfare against Jesus. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you can see, of course, Dante and Chaucer and some late medieval texts starting to move in this direction. But I mean, it's a very modern anxiety that Jesus is going to be uh, so universally, uh, I don't even know what word to use, but I mean, so uh, universally potent that right. he's even there to be exploited. Right. Well, and the, and the, and the sort of the circuit in this whole story, it's a, it's it's actually I mean it's it's a funny book. Um that's that's something very important to say. It's not just oh, interesting. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I I should have said something about I mean, that. Yeah, I mean it's a hilarious hilarious book. Oh, like I've never there's very few books that I've that I have like cried in public. I'm laughing so hard. It is just so funny. But, you know, there is sort of a completion of the circuit because while the while the magi in Lamb come to sort of exploit Jesus. I don't know if exploit's the right word, but they certainly I, want I, I something. I think they're there to exploit him. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they, they they do certainly want something out of him, but then the circuit's completed because when Jesus then visits them, and this is especially true with Gaspar, um, he visits them and then they sort of get what they were searching for, but in ways that wasn't, in ways that weren't what they expected. Yeah, so they um, have their own conversion. Exactly. And so they sort of like they they are coming to Jesus in search of something. He doesn't really provide what they need, at least not when he's an infant. But then when he comes and seeks them out, he sort of sort of a like a, if you think about this as kind of flipping the story on its head, Jesus then becomes the one who brings them gifts, but gifts that are sort of unexpected. Absolutely, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and I want to be clear, listeners, I don't want to make the claim that Charles Moore is a Lutheran or ever has been one. But it's a very Lutheran kind of a story that way. When mm-hmm. you go seeking Jesus, you don't get what you want. But when Jesus seeks you, good things happen. There you go. Sorry, I got to preach in there. <laughs> well, anyway, um, the final Moggy narrative that you examine is just barely pre-pandemic. And it's Barbara Brown Taylor's uh, uh, children's Christmas book. What features of the Magi story show up there and what big picture emerges now that we've got all these stories sitting next to each other in your book? Yeah. So this was one of those. um, Yeah, this book is uh, is is uh, home by another way. A Christmas story. Yeah. 2018. Um, When I picked up this book, I should I should preface this by saying I have read um, lots of Barbara Brown Taylor having gone to seminary and mainstream seminaries are using a lot of a lot of her texts. Um, I have found a lot of her work uh, to be extremely valuable, and so none of this is a slam against uh, against Reverend Taylor. Um, when I picked up this book, uh, I was very much just searching for the most recent kind of plain children's book on the Magi that I could find. And so when I was searching on Amazon, this popped up, and I was like, great, awesome. And it also, you know, shares the name of a of a James Taylor song, which I discussed briefly in one of the chapters. And so I said, yeah, this will be wonderful. And I bought it and uh, and then I and then it basically sat on my desk. I didn't really look at it until I was working on the on on this chapter, at, at which point I had already finished the chapters on the Apocrypha and the patristic readings. 
And I opened it up and it was, it was interesting because it does kind of draw out some of these themes. Like one of the things that develops is the idea that the Magi aren't traveling together to, to Bethlehem, but that they are converging on Bethlehem from a number of different uh, locations. So like in the Armenian gospel of the infancy, for example, they're coming from, you know, Africa and India and whatever. So the world is converging on the city. And so she kind of has that as well. Like they meet up at a spot and go, oh, wow, we're all traveling to the same place. Um, one of the tropes that's that's present in that book is also, you know, one of the Magi in, in uh, and it's an illustrated book. So it's, you know, that 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 dynamic is there as well. But, you know, one of the Magi has slightly darker skin, which is a which is a trope that kind of emerges in the medieval period. Um, and then it also has some really, really unfortunate rhetoric in it. And one of the most unfortunate things is the reproduction of this anti-Judaism. And, uh, you know, that th that we see very much in, in, in the patristic era and also in the apocryphal text as the Magi are the good Gentiles who are just seeking the truth and seeking to worship Jesus. And then Herod and the other people in Jerusalem um, are just wanting to kill him so that they can stay in power and they don't have to be challenged or anything like that. And um, I will say that when I saw when I saw that trope, which is visible not in the text as much, well, there, it, it is in the text as well, but it's very, very visible in the illustrations of this book. And so there's this one page where Herod and his advisors are consulting they're, I can't remember what she calls it exactly. They're consulting their records or or something like this, which is very clearly supposed to refer to the, the text of the Hebrew Bible. And she describes them as like moldy or musty or something like from disuse, right? They're just these old moldy books that Herod and the other people in, Ju in Jerusalem aren't using, right? And they're, well, and you they're know, Eric, a dusty yeah. Bible leads to a dusty soul. I, you know, so I've heard, right, I guess, but, but, you know, they're that so, so the way that she describes them though, is that they are like hunched over, you know, taking these books that they haven't been reading, right? Because they're, because they're moldy. And, and again, I need to check before I, it, that might be a slightly different word, but it, it, it certainly does suggest disuse of these texts. Sure, sure. And then when you pair that to the illustration that's on the same two page spread, and what you have is, Herod and his advisors in this dark room, right? And they're all hunched over and they're sort of like scheming and it's dark. And then standing out in the courtyard, dressed in nice clean robes, which is funny since they've been traveling like through the desert, you know, um, but these nice clean, uh, colorful magi who are in the sun, who are in the light. And I looked at that page and I thought, well, crap. It's there. I mean, it's there too, right? And so this this trope of this sort of anti-Judaism that 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 latches on to the Magi story and then just keeps on perpetuating itself, you even have it in this kind of children's Christmas book, which is not a book with an agenda. It's a book that's designed like Hurlbut to simply tell the story in a way that is accessible to children. Right. And my kids are both teenagers, so we haven't gotten many children's books recently. But the way you wrote about that spread, I mean, it reminded me almost of a Caravaggio painting, the, you know, the good guys in the light and the bad guys in the dark. Right. Right. Yeah. It's um. but yeah, it was it's a, it was a very um, 
it was a very unfortunate dynamic that I didn't expect to find. Like I didn't, I didn't buy the book to say, all right, now let's let Taylor have it. I bought the book as just a, let's see how children's, let's see how a recent children's book addresses the story. And then what I found was like, well, there's lots and lots of unhelpful things there. Yeah. These are hard things to get away from. They really are. Well, Eric, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about the Magi? I'll say it that way here at the close translation or whatever else as we head for the door. Oh, a, a nice, easy softball right here at the end, right? Is the, <laughs> what do I want people to take away? You know, um, what I want people to take away is, you know, this is one example of a story that I think anyone who's read it or heard of it or grown up listening to it, uh, this is an example of a, of a story that people think that they have a really, really good hold on. And, um, and you know, this is, uh, it's a good, it's a good helpful reminder. And I think that's what I want people to take with them. It's a good helpful reminder that um, the things that we think that we're familiar with, um, we are often not nearly as familiar with them as we think we are. And so whether it be a story in the biblical text or, or a painting or anything like this, there is, there is some value to, uh, to re-examining things and to say, okay, I'm going to pretend like I've never heard of this story before. What's going on here? And this book is a really, really good example of just how much can come out of asking that question of, I wonder what I've missed. Eric Van Den Eichel, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. That's been a blast. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is The Magi, Who They Were, How They've Been Remembered, and Why They Still Fascinate from Fortress Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace serve the Lord.